0: Hello, and welcome to episode 27 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I am Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl Bialik, listeners may know, is the host also of the 30 Love podcast, which is a great resource for... Um, not-too-long conversations with people from all across the tennis world, so definitely check that out just as soon as you're listening to this episode in its entirety and the remainder of our 26-episode archives. So we are one day away from the beginning of 2018 Roland Garros. The French Open starts with a bit of a whimper tomorrow with their weird Sunday start, Uh, but the draws are set, uh, the players are all there, the qualifying is done, and a lot of interesting things to discuss just with the draws and, and some of the form we've seen from various players coming in. We talked about some of the big issues last week, especially with the, the Rome champions and runners-up and what that had to say about their chances in Paris. But let's start on the women's side with the WTA draw, and let's start by talking about Serena Williams. Uh, we know she she's there. She's practicing. Her coach it sounds very optimistic about her form. Um but we don't know a lot about what really to expect from her. Carl, you said when we talked about it last week or the week before that you can see her sort of playing into form. Um, maybe she'll need a little time to used to the surface and, and the stage, but the draw really worked out for her well. She she came in unseated, which we can talk about a little bit, just the, the, the decision going on there, but she got pretty lucky. She drew Christina Plishkova, another unseated player in the first round, and then she gets potentially Ashley Barty, number 17 seed in the second round, and then Julia Gurgis in the third round. So, so not really a, a big challenge for her if she's playing well until the fourth round, by which point she will have had a chance to play herself into form. So what do you think, Carl? Given how the draw shook out for Serena, do you think we're going to see her in the second week as a factor in this tournament?
1: I do, although I think Julia Gergis is a real threat. I, I think she's had some great results on clay in the past. But by then, you know, we'd be talking about the third round. And I do like Serena's chances in the first two. I love Ashley Barty, but she's not a clay specialist.
0: Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, I'm really looking forward to the grass season arriving, partly just so we can see what Ashley Barty can do. Um but yeah, it, it, it yeah maybe I did underplay Gerges's, um challenge level. Let's say in in the third round there. The really interesting thing for Serena could happen in the fourth round because w- where she sits in that section—that's Karolina Pliskova's uh, section of the draw, her quarter—and before they get to face Serena, Pliskova is going to possibly have to face Maria Sharapova. So we have the possibility of a round of 16 match at Roland Garros between Serena Williams and Maria Sharapova. And most WTA fans know by now that Serena has absolutely owned Sharapova over the years uh, to, to an extent that's really unheard of for two players, both as, uh, as accomplished as they both are. Do you think this is... A chance for Sharapova to turn the tables a little bit. I mean, she she's played more. She's on. She's had some some recent time good matches on clay. I mean, is this a chance for her to turn the tables, Carl? Definitely. I think she's been a better player on clay
1: overall for the last five years. She's had way more matches in the last year and a half. And if she could, if she gets to that match, there's a good chance she'll have beaten Karolina Pliskova who's the highest-seeded player in that section. On the other hand, if Serena Williams gets there, it's Serena Williams in the fourth round of a major, and it's a, she's, that's a different player than we're assessing right now. And there does seem to be something in that matchup with Sharapova that just really works for her, and it, it could be the motivation to beat Sharapova. It could be something more tactical.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. Do you think that Sharapova is, would get past Pliskova? What, what do you see happening in that match if it comes to happen? It's
1: 50-50 for me. They, they both would have gotten that far. Pliskova did well last year at the French Open, but still isn't really a great mover on clay or, or really prefers clay. And Sharapova has been looking really strong recently.
0: Yeah, I'm with you there too. I, w- I would give Sharapova the edge in, in that matchup, but yeah, there's still a lot of questions about Sharapova's game as well. I mean, I think her number 28 seed is that doesn't quite state where she's at, but at, at the same time, I'm not ready to put her back in the top 10 conversation. I think she, she has more to prove before we get there. Um, one thing that I wanted to talk about in last week's episode, and this is a bit of a digression, is um, Last week we were talking about some some very familiar matchups like Halep Sharapova and Halep's Fedelina and on the men's side, Djokovic Nadal, and and some others and th- there's this constant debate in in tennis about how much weight to give to head to heads and from an analytical perspective, I- I've. I- I've found in the past that you can't give head-to-heads very much weight. I mean, if you're looking at a player, a player's ranking or their ELO rating, you're looking at something that's based on often hundreds of matches. If you're looking at a head-to-head, you're usually looking at something that's, I don't know, seven matches. Or even in an extreme case like Nadal Djokovic, we're talking about 50. Um, I did an article for The Economist, I think it was during Wimbledon last year, where I found that once once you do get to 50 matches in the head-to-head, then it it is as predictive as... Elo ratings are, but 50 is something that I mean it never happens. I mean it's basically just Nadal, Djokovic, and in a lot of these instances lately, like like Nadal, Djokovic, and Halep, Sharapova, and potentially some of these others like Serena Sharapova, the the immediate circumstances of the match kind of over uh, overwhelm the background of the head to head. So I guess it, my question for you, Carl, is. It, if, if you're looking at some of these matchups where you, where you, have, you have a head-to-head that's pretty lopsided, but you also have, have a current situation that points in the other direction, how much of a factor is that head-to-head?
1: Yeah, I really think of a player as being multiple players during their career, and the head-to-head is a reflection of all of those different players facing different versions of their opponent. So there are certainly some commonalities, some common threads, but when players say all the time when they're asked about the last match against their next opponent, oh, that was a different surface, that was a different time, that, that was uh, different circumstances, I've tended to poo-poo it, but I think there's, there's a lot to it, and that if we are fixated on that match, then we're ignoring all the matches that have come in between. So even Serena Williams and Maria Sharapova, while it's very lopsided, and it is a lot of matches. I think it's between 20 and 25. It's not at that 50 state, but also not only because the two players are toward the end, closer to the end than the beginning of their careers, but also because of the comebacks they've had to mount recently. I think it's, it's hard to make too much of that. It's, it, it would be unwise to make a lot of that head-to-head if they happen to meet in a week.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely agree in this case. I mean, I, I think the way you put it was it was really well said. That every matchup is a meeting between different players, even even if they have the same the same name. I mean, if you if you have two people who are facing each other in back to back weeks on the same surface, or even a, a few weeks apart, then okay, then then you can look to that last match. But so often players are changing. In this case, they've missed a lot of time. They've they've had to make a lot of adjustments, and who knows what form they're in. So. So yeah, absolutely agree there. I think in general, you can't throw away a head-to-head, but you have to treat it with a lot of caution. I mean, anytime you have such a small sample size, even when it feels like a really relevant small sample, as as head-to-heads often do. So let's, we've been talking about the second quarter on the women's side, where you have Serena and Sharapova. Let's switch back to the top quarter, which is Simona Halep's quarter. I calculated my my draw forecast last night with 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 the draw as it stands now, and usually, but in the last ten years, let's say when you have a Serena or or someone like that at the top of the someone like that, as if there's someone like Serena, you have some a clear number one. Usually, that number one has maybe a thirty five chance, thirty five percent chance of winning a, a women's slam. And Halep isn't even at 20%. She is the favorite, but just barely. And I think it's 19 or 19.2% or something. Um, Do you think that's right, Carl? Do you think the field is so wide open that we really have a favorite only in name? Yeah, I do. I think when we were talking about the draw ahead of time,
1: we kind of guesstimated that's where it would come in is, is somewhere between 10 and 20. And... Closer to 20 feels right. I mean, Halep is really strong on clay. So if she's number one overall, then putting her at a strong number one on clay makes sense. She's actually only a little bit ahead of Svitolina at 18%. I mean, it's really striking to me is that it's so distributed among the rest of the players that nobody else is even at 8%, if I'm reading the forecast correctly. So you have a a number one, a pretty strong runner-up, uh, who just beat her in Rome and has a good, has had a good play season. And then you don't you have a whole lot of other players who have a shot, but not a big one.
0: Yeah, and that's often what the, what the forecast ends up looking like, just not with such low ones or ones and twos. Um, but looking at what Halep has to work with, she has a potential round of 16 match with Elise Mertens, who rates very high on my clay elo. And then the potential quarterfinal match is... According to the Seeds, it's Caroline Garcia. Angelique Kerber's in there as well. And Kerber's going to have to get past Kiki Burtons, who, as listeners will well know by now is again according to my ELO ratings one of the very top players on clay I think she might be number three behind Svitolina so there's some dangerous players in there of that group Mertens Kerber Garcia Burtons. these are all players that that Halep has beaten especially on clay although I can't remember a Burton's match offhand Um, do you see one of them as as a particular threat to Halep just getting out of that quarter I guess Burton's, uh, but it, it
1: really should be Hallop's quarter to win.
0: Yeah, I think so too. I mean, it, it, I was actually surprised that having having Burton's and Mertens there in in that section d- didn't affect Hallop's uh, Hallop's forecast a little more, since they they do rate so high on clay. But but yeah, the, they're not huge threats and. and I guess my I'll be very curious to see that Halep Mertens match if that is how it turns out in round four because they played in the round of 32 in Madrid a few weeks ago but Mertens had just won the title in Rabat and it was that really rough uh, I think it was just a 24-hour turnaround where she won the title in Rabat on Saturday and then had to play uh, her first round match on Sunday and then Simona on Monday or Tuesday so Mertens did well just to get there and it, it took her a set to really get into that match, so if Mertens is is rested, I think that could be a much more interesting contest. In that second section, um, that where Serena and Sharapova are lurking, we also have Garmini Muguruza, who two years ago won this title. Uh, I, I feel like we've been talking about clay court tennis for the last four weeks, and I'm not sure we've even mentioned her name, so we should, we should definitely get on board with that. She has a, a sort of tricky first-rounder against Svetlana Kuznetsova. Samantha Stozer is in that section. Laura Ziegeman is in that section. Um, so if we have this this really wide-open quarter with a lot of big names, Muguruza, Serena Sharapova, Karolina Pliskova, with all those threats and with Muguruza not having a great season, uh, do you still see that as Muguruza's quarter to win, I mean since that's what her seed says? I I do, only because she's
1: shown herself to really lift her game at a slam. But yeah, just scanning her results this season, there hasn't it's not just been four weeks that there hasn't been a ton of reason to, to mention her. I, I I'm just struck by how well she's done in the past at the French Open, notably beating Serena Williams twice, once in a final. So Given that there are a lot of questions around other players in that, in that section as well, I'm going to go with the highest seed and the one the forecast likes the best.
0: Okay. So, into the bottom half, uh, we talked about Yelena Ostapenko and her chances of defending her title last week, and we were... We weren't super optimistic about our chances of defending the title. I think we agreed that she was a quarterfinal or semifinalist at this point. She's in the same quarter as Alina Fidolina, which, as you mentioned, is our, our our number two favorite, according to the forecast. So do you stick with that, Carl? Do you think that uh, do you think we're likely to see an Ostapenko-Svitolina quarterfinal going the direction of Alina Svitolina? I do. I don't see a ton of threats from the other seeds, although I'd love
1: to see Schiavone unseeded former champ, win a match or two. Um, yeah, I mean, there's Azarenka, who hasn't done much on clay, who Ostapenko could face in the second round. And Naomi Osaka is has a decent draw to get to the fourth round, where she'd potentially face Vitalina, and she could be dangerous. So some threats, but a lot of
0: non-clay players in Svitolina's part of the draw. Yeah, it seems like a lot of players who, who in theory, could be threats, and they could also lose in the first round. I mean, Madison Keyes, she made the final in Rome a couple of years ago, so in theory she's a threat. Venus Williams is in there. I mean, there, there's just a lot of good players, and it would probably be a more interesting section of the draw if we were talking about the Australian Open instead of the French Open. Um, Azarenka definitely fits into that category as well, but yeah, it does seem like Ostapenko and Svitolina have have the paths to that quarterfinal if they if they take them, and then it's Alina's quarter to win. So then the last quarter uh, looks a little bit weak on paper. the The favorite according to the seeds is Caroline Wozniacki, who's not much of a clay court player. Uh, Sloane Stevens is in there, also not a clay quarter. So it, it might be Petra Kvitova's quarter to win. It, she's a better player on clay, I think, than the rest of them. She's been playing pretty well. Um, Daria Kazakina is in there as well, another person who's had some decent results on clay and has the game for it. How do you see that quarter shaking out, Carl? Do you do you agree that that's Petra's quarter to win? I do.
1: I, I do. Uh, she She can be really inconsistent, but she'd be beating herself with most of the players in there. I mean, even until the quarterfinal, it's hard to see anyone there who's a big threat on clay. Uh, and then you could have Suarez Navarro or Kasatkina give her a tough match if Wozniacki doesn't hold her seed.
0: And I have to add, my my super dark horse here is Maria Sakari, who I, th- I I think she would... I forget where exactly she is, but... Uh, she's in that bottom section with Kazakina and Wozniacki. I, I remember a couple weeks ago when we were looking at the Rome draw, we were talking about how how we were excited for this clash between Kiki Burtons and Karolina Pliskova, coming off of those two women having good runs in Madrid. So as that turned out, Kiki Burtons lost in the first round to Maria Sakari, who ended up facing Karolina Pliskova in the second round, and Sakari beat Pliskova in the second round. So... Definitely a player who can record some big scalps on clay. I don't know if she has it in her to win enough matches to maybe get to that quarterfinal against Petra, but I'm, I'm definitely taking her as my dark, dark horse here. I would love to see her play well. She's an entertain entertaining player to watch, uh, really resourceful and a solid counterpuncher. So, yeah, I, I agree it's Petra. Maybe she'll have to beat Sakari to get there if, if all goes well for my pick. So... So, Carl, looking at these these four sections, it sounds like we're, did, did we agree, with, were you going with Muguruza in her quarter, or were you picking somebody else there?
1: I'm going with Muguruza.
0: Okay, so, so we're, we're looking at some semifinals of Halep, Muguruza, Svitolina, Kvitova, which I'd certainly be happy with. If you had to pick one of those four that's least likely to happen, uh, where, where do you think we're likely to see a surprise? Muguruza. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, uh, just the fact you have Serena and Sharapova there is, is is enough, and there's some other solid players there as well, like Karolina Pliskova is kind of getting forgotten. Um, and uh, I'm I'm contractually obligated to pick Halep as my French Open winner, but you have a little more flexibility, I think. Uh, who who would you pick as the titleist at this point?
1: Hmm. I I'll say Svitolina.
0: Okay, so we're. Pretty predictable with one and two yeah, uh, matching the ELO forecast. So there you go. Any other comments on the, the women's draw, Carl, since I'm guessing you're looking right at it and I'm working off my notes?
1: <laughs> no, I think you hit the main ones I wanted
0: to. I think maybe we overlook Caroline Garcia
1: a little bit too. She's had a really solid year and um, she's a favorite of mine and she'll be playing in front of the home fans and she has a pretty nice draw to at least make the fourth round.
0: Yeah, she does. Uh, it, it is easy to forget about her sometimes, especially when she she isn't coming through with big wins. I mean, she, she's slated to hit Halep in the quarterfinals, and they played each other in Rome. And it wasn't lopsided, but it, it never really looked like Garcia had much of a chance. So I guess that's why I was giving her the short shrift, because it feels like she has a decent chance at the quarterfinals, but I'd be really surprised to see her make it to the semis. And I th- for me, I guess, as she's the number seven seed, having a, a good shot of the semifinals is what makes, would make her interesting, and I don't think she has that. And I am crossing my fingers as I say that because I really hope she doesn't prove me wrong. So that would come probably at the cost of Simona Halep semifinal place. So, switching over to the men's side, um, as we've been discussing for probably our, our last string of three or four podcasts, this is this is all Nadal's to win. My forecast gives Rafa a 58% chance of winning the title, which might be the highest um, my model has ever spit out for a, a, a favorite at a slam. On the other hand, that in, in one way, that's low. Um, the Economist did a little thing on uh, on his chances at the French, and I, I guess some betting sites have him at 70 or 71% which just seems outrageous to me. Um, but on the other hand, when I, I wrote something a couple weeks ago about his performances in Barcelona and Monte Carlo, and since he's been so good at these tournaments, the, the level he has played at these tournaments in the past is so much better even than his normal level that 70% might be right. W- what do you think, Carl? Is, is 70% realistic for to, to have a probability on Rafael Nadal right now?
1: I mean, I haven't checked the math. I, I think it's defensible, but I also think with all of these extreme forecasts for extreme favorites, the, the reason they're, they're likely to lose, the, the chance of some external event other than them just being outplayed starts to become significant. So in Nadal's case, I think about 2016, when he looked great, At the coming into the tournament in his first two matches and then he had to withdraw with an injury. So I think there's there's some kind of uncertainty just around is the Nadal we see in each match going to be the Nadal we expect?
0: Yeah, that is a big issue. And that's something we've talked about in one of the podcasts we did last year that I've gotten a lot of pushback over the years with my forecasts that often will say the favorite has a 40% chance or something. And it's possible that I was doing something wrong, especially with Nadal at the French Open. But at the same time, yeah, when you've got to win seven matches and there's a risk of injury and two or three of those matches are likely to be against really good players, 70% means you're basically guaranteed to land in the fourth round or the quarterfinals. I mean, there's just no room for error. Even even the 58% is just extremely high. And I'm thinking back to one of the conversations we had last week when we were talking about how much of a threat Zverev poses, Zverev took a set from Nadal in the Rome final. And I think you said you would give Zverev a one in three shot of beating Nadal at the French. And there's your 70% right there. (laughs) I mean, there's no guarantee that Zverev is the opponent in the final, but if he is, then I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's too optimistic for Zverev, but I mean that's all it takes to make a seventy percent forecast too optimistic, uh, but whatever it is, it's it's certainly high, uh, and there's the draw worked very much in his favor. We have Zverev and Team and Djokovic all in the bottom half against Rafa in the top half. So really, we're looking at Chilich and a, a few other threats in that top half. I mean. I'm hoping you switched over and you're looking at that draw now, Carl. Do you see anybody else in the top half who could stand in Rafa's way aside from the injury gods? Not really. I mean, I see a few players who have given
1: him an occasional challenge, although even there, none of them uh, in the first... I think it's none of them before the quarterfinal, basically. Uh, in, In the quarterfinal, he could face... Diego Schwartzman, who I, I know we make a lot of in this podcast, but I remember he gave Rafa a decent match at Monte Carlo last year. He gave him a really tough match at the Australian Open this year on a surface that was neither of their favorites. So that could be something. I mean, clearly I'm grasping a little bit at straws. And then if it's not Chilich or Del Potro in the, in the semi, um... You know you could have Fabio Fanini who's beaten Rafa multiple times on clay, and you could have John Isner who took Rafa to five sets at the twenty eleven French Open so thin thin pickings
0: yeah, definitely I almost want to pick Isner just because not that not that he's even likely to make that semi final not not by a long shot but if, if you had to pick someone who was likely to beat Rafa on any given day, he might be the one. I, mean, I, w- I would love it if Schwartzman were a little bit more of a threat, but it is tough to see him sustaining, I mean, really sustaining the level to beat Rafa for one set, but for three is a, a big ask. Um, one player in that section who you, you rightfully didn't mention as a threat to Rafa, but I want to talk about a little bit, is Kyle Edmund. Um, he has a possible fourth rounder against Marin Cilic, so we're probably not going to see him past that point. But there was an an interesting clickbaity headline in the, the British press uh, based on Kyle Edmund now being the British number one, surpassing the injured Andy Murray. And the, the headline asked, is, is Kyle Edmund going to be the next Andy Murray or just, keyword there, the next Tim Henman?" And both of those are, are pretty optimistic forecasts for Kyle Edmund, who still hasn't even cracked the top ten. Has a little while, has a little ways left to accomplish that. But I'm curious, like, I've never, I haven't followed Edmund too closely. I've never seen anything in his game to get really excited about. Setting aside the Murray and Henman nonsense, Carl, what do you think the the long term forecast is for Kyle Edmund?
1: Well, he's ranked 17th and he's 23. So it does seem likely he'll eventually break into the top 10. Will he stay there for a long time? Uh, less certain. He hasn't had a meteoric rise. He's, he's had a long-time steady rise, and he hasn't had that many really big wins. So I don't think any of those are a great sign for being top 5, let alone staying in the top 5 for a long time, like Henman, let alone... You know, winning three majors and staying in the top four for years and years like Murray did. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think Edmund is experiencing a little bit what the American players after Andy Roddick experienced. Like, is he going to be Pete Sampras or just Andy Roddick? Well, might be (laughs) neither and still have a really
0: good career. Yeah, now the question should be, is he going to be Pete Sampras, Andy Roddick or Donald Young? That's the question or, for all prospects. Or even
1: John Isner, right? Like John Isner, yep. you could see Edmund having a John Isner level career. And I think Isner has peaked so far at least something like eight or nine in the world. He won a Masters. He's won a lot of tournaments. A perfectly acceptable career, an excellent career, you know, for for anyone. Um, and for Isner, who has an incredible serve but has weakness in other parts of the game, Edmund has a good serve and a good forehand and weakness in other parts of the game. And he's already made it to where he has. So yeah, maybe he can manage his game really well and get into the top 10. I have trouble seeing him doing a lot more than that.
0: Yeah. Speaking of Americans, Sam query fits that, that model pretty closely. No masters like Isner, but he's, he's been in that number 10 range for some time and he's put together a a solid career. Um, for someone closer to his age, since we're talking about Edmund, how would you compare Edmund's chances to Luca Pui? I mean, he's Pui seems like someone with a bigger future, at least the way people talk about it. Maybe it's just because French fans have been talking him up since he was 16 or 17. Uh, although, I don't know how that compares to British fans talking up Edmund. But Pui's at about the same place in the rankings. He's won some small titles, but never really broken through at a higher level. If you had to pick one player going forward for your you know, your I don't know, lifetime tennis fantasy team. Would you go with Edmund or Puy? I'd go with Puy, but not by a lot.
1: One, because he visually <laughs> visual inspection says he has a more complete game, and two, because his ranking has peaked at ten, so he's already gotten into the top ten. And that seems significant. Um but yeah, it's it's a close call. I mean, Puy also has stalled at times in the rankings and had some pretty disappointing results. And he's a year older.
0: Yeah, it does. It, 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 it's a bit surprising to think how old he is now because he's one of those sort of perpetual prospects. Everyone's always expecting bigger things, but that's been going on for some years now. So... Let's wrap up our summary of the top half there with the conclusion that Rafael Nadal is good, Kyle Edmund is not quite so good. So in the second half, starting with the third quarter, that even though the the presumptive seed is Grigor Dimitrov at number four and David Gofan is in there as well, I have to look at that as Novak Djokovic's quarter. He's seeded 20th. Uh, he could face Bautista Agu in the third round, and then Dimitrov in the round of 16. Uh, Maybe I'm being overly optimistic, and maybe I just like my ELO ratings too much, but I see that as Djokovic's place in the quarterfinals to lose. Do you agree with that, Carl? I do, absolutely.
1: Uh, I think that I'm being swayed somewhat by the percentages in your draw and the seedings we've talked about, but... And I'm probably being swayed a little too much by the recency of the Rome results where he made the semi and played a really good first set against Nadal. But Dimitrov hasn't been all that impressive recently. And Djokovic seems to be healthy again and playing into form and has a pretty nice draw to get to that round of 16 match. I think a fan could be tough and also has a nice draw to get to that quarterfinal. I'd be... I think, more excited about Gofan Djokovic than about Dimitrov Djokovic.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And I guess the question with with Djokovic is just how fit is he at this point? Because he did play a really impressive set against Nadal, and it, it's just an illustration of, of how much Nadal influences our, our discussion on clay, that you're suddenly, you suddenly are confirmed as the number three player in the world if you've almost won a set from him. But he wasn't so good in the second. He's, he said some things in, in interviews after matches about his his body not being 100% or his fitness not being entirely back. And that's a much bigger factor when you have to play best of five. That's what makes sense to me about your point about Goffin. Because Goffin is someone who at least is going to play him close enough to maybe push to a fourth or fifth set. But another, if that is a concern, then we could say the same thing about Bautista Agu. I mean... He doesn't have the talent of a Djokovic by any stretch, and I would still pick Novak in that match, but he is someone who could keep Novak on court long enough to maybe expose the fitness. And that's early enough in the tournament that Djokovic won't really have that much time to play his way into that. Um, Into the bottom quarter, which is Zverev's to lose, we also have Dominic team there. Dominic team is preparing for the tournament by playing a lot of matches in Lyon, I think, this week. Uh, If it does come to a team's Zverev quarterfinal, Carl, who do you got there?
1: Zverev, although I say that realizing that I'm picking against Zverev's weak slam history.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm even presuming a pretty good step for Zverev just by guessing he'll be in the quarterfinal. Um there's a bit of a threat there that Zverev's, according to the seeds, Zverev will face Luka Pui in the round of 16, but Stan Vavrinka's in there too. He'll play Pui in the third round, so Zverev could have to be Vavrinka in the fourth round. That's another situation where if he's there, he could be dangerous. I mean, it seems rather unlikely since Vavrinka struggled in Geneva this past week and hasn't played very much at all. In, what do you think about Vavrinka Carl? Is it I guess uh, trying to f- come up with a good question here. Um, what do you think the odds are that we even see Vavrinka in the second week at Roland Garros?
1: Really low. Unless he's just been biding his time getting in a match at, at each tournament. I saw his second set against Fush- Fushkovitz in Geneva, and he was bageled and looked just completely out of sorts. And that was with a home crowd cheering him on. So that really concerned me even to get through the first round. I mean, Guillermo Garcia Lopez has been playing decently recently and is not an automatic win.
0: Yeah, a couple other interesting players in that section, they're they're on team's half of the bottom quarter, is a possible second-round opponent for Dominic Team, which is Stefano Sitsipas, uh, made the final in Barcelona. Uh, Really promising young player, another nice one-handed backhand. And then another player in that section is Kay Nishikori, um, who could be team's opponent in the fourth round? Uh, same question about Nishikori. It's been a little unclear what we're seeing from him. Uh, he he's had some some good moments in this clay season, but hasn't really made a breakthrough. Uh, what do you think the odds are, are that that he gets to that second week? Do you mean by gets to the second week beats team? Um. Well, I think technically second week means fourth, fourth round. round, but. It's never been super clear to me since the fourth round starts on Sunday. Maybe it's easier at Roland Garros where they start on a Sunday, so there's you know, there's some weird, weak definitions. But let's start by beating Query. What, what do you think the odds are Nishikori is team's opponent in the round of 16? Really good. Yeah. And then what what about against team? 40%? Okay. That's interesting. Um, one I haven't published this yet but I was just tinkering around before we recorded with with draw luck to see how much the actual uh, the actual bracket worked to the advantage of various players and um, Jeff of First Ball In who has a a Tumblr account that he blogs on, uh, he did the same thing last night as well and found that the draw gives Nadal a bit of an edge I think like uh, he's got this 58% and without without knowing how the draw shook out with all these good players in the other half, Nadal's chances were 53% or something like that. So it's a, a modest boost. But what I was surprised to find is, even though it, it feels like almost all of the, the non-Nadal threats are in the bottom half, not very many of them were disadvantaged very much by the draw. Um, Djokovic... Uh, Basically, his chances are the same as they were before the draw was set. Thinks Zverev's are one percent lower or something. I mean, and that's not percentage points, just a a one percent difference. So a really tiny one. Um, so it it doesn't feel like a super fair draw with all the good players in the bottom half. But as it turns out, most of these guys are weren't likely to go that much further anyway so but I think it's also uh, that they avoid
1: Nadal so Nadal avoids them and they avoid Nadal
0: yeah that that's right and actually one of the the top players who was unlucky is Marin Cilic he had a 50% chance before the draw came out of not having to face Nadal to get to the final and maybe David in chance of getting to the final then but since he does run into Nadal before he gets to the final he's probably going to stop there if he hasn't lost already so, so that is exactly it. But it, 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 in a surprising way, it, it ended up being rather fair. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so anything else on the draw, Carl, before we go on a few other topics?
1: No, I think we both pick Rafa. <laughs>
0: yeah, we both pick Rafa. Um, I, would, I would go with Joe Wilford Sanga, but he's not playing, so I think he's a pretty long shot. Very, very dark horse. So, one of the big stories of the tournament, somehow there's a big story coming out of both men's and women's doubles. Starting with the men's doubles, Bob Bryan's injured, so the Bryan brothers are not playing for the first time, in I think it's 76 slams, which is just an outrageous streak to maintain. What I found interesting about this, now, they're 40 now, is that right, Carl? 40 years old?
1: I think that's right.
0: Okay, so... Even by double standards, they're approaching retirement age. And you said something in one of our podcasts last year, I think, that you've been kind of expecting them to go into retirement tour mode. Like, we never really know if one day they're going to you know, lose in the semifinals at the U.S. Open and hold a press conference and tell us that that was it. Uh, they've continued to play really well. They've won tournaments despite being 40. What surprised me here, in light of the retirement mode comment, is with with Bob on the sidelines, Mike is still playing. He's partnering Sam query which still makes a pretty threatening doubles team. I mean, how do you, how do you react, to that, Carl? Were you were you also surprised that that Mike is even playing?
1: No, I mean it's a Grand Slam. He whether they're they have retirement at all in their future or not in mind, uh, they have to be thinking about it or they have to be thinking hey I don't know how many more french opens I'm going to play so I should play this one they're also both within range of the number 1 ranking so if he and sam win some matches like he could actually be ranked number 1 after the tournament so I'd be I would have been surprised if, if he didn't play it I'm sure bob was fine with it
0: yeah, I'm, I'm sure he was too. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't realize they were ranked so high. For some reason, I have the hardest time keeping up with doubles rankings. But there you have it. So on the women's side, the news is Serena and Venus are playing, which is always a pleasant surprise. I mean, it's fun to see them play doubles, even if they're not winning. And if they're playing anywhere near their top form, then they're they're likely to win. Um, don't really have a, a, a question to ask you about that, Carl, but I'm a little surprised to see that happen since Serena is still playing herself back into shape. Um, do you expect much from them? Do you think this is basically just a glorified exhibition or are they contenders for this trophy? Well,
1: on the one hand, they've won 12 majors together. On the other hand, they've withdrawn from quite a few, so I wouldn't be sure they play a match or if they do play and win that they'll play a second one. It does seem like with both of them not having had a ton of matches, and and maybe neither thinking she has a great chance of winning the singles title, like a way to enjoy each other's company and, and play tennis together. That's that's what I hope because I'd love to see them win doubles matches and actually make a run in the in the doubles draw.
0: Yeah, me too. I mean, I I agree with your point that. It, you're right. It's likely that I maybe mean, "likely" is not the right word, but there's a decent chance they'll still withdraw. They've done it before, but but yeah, it's and and it's great for doubles. It's it's great just for fan interest to see them on court more of the time, um, even if even if they're losing, which uh, they might not. So the one other big item of tennis news this week is the suspension of Nicolas Kicker, an Argentinian player ranked just inside the top 100 for. Uh, throwing matches or f- fixing matches in 2015, I believe. Uh, I-, I haven't read all the details about this. The tennis integrity unit, or the, all these governing bodies aren't always the most transparent. So Kicker had, was in the draw and then obviously is not now that he's been suspended. There's also a suspension for, I think it's Federico Coria who knew about it but didn't report it. So uh, it, it's gotten a little messy. Carl, it, it, it's always nice to see suspensions happen for something like this. I and mean, we know match fixing happens. You, you wrote about it for 538 a few years ago, and I pitched in a little on that project. It, it, it seems like it's, it's an acknowledged fact that it happens at the lower levels of the game. On the other hand, it's, it's not super encouraging that it took three years from the instance happening to a suspension coming down. So do you view this as as progress to, to have a high-profile um, suspension like this?
1: Um, I mean, assuming it's right, and it sounds like it's right, there's some progress here. But yeah, we had almost three years ago, September 9th, 2015, we had one of the real experts on match betting and match fixing, Ian Dorward, write a... An extremely detailed piece about why the one of the matches, the match that actually anyone noticed, was suspicious, and then you know we get the suspension in May 2018. So if if you said to a player, hey, you could do this thing that will help get you money, and a player at kicker's ranking at the time of 171 is generally, unless incredibly generously sponsored, going to need money, uh, and and then it's possible in three years you'll be punished for it. I mean, it's similar to the hypothetical steroids question of like, if I give you this pill, and you may have some problems health-wise or otherwise down down the line. So many players say yes to that.
0: Yeah, the, the three years is is really frustrating, especially as you point out, because the a lot of the evidence was right there for anybody to find. Um, especially if the TIU was making any kind of effort at all. So, I mean, it, it's in a way it's good that they're dotting their I's and crossing their T's. So you would hope that by this point, they've, they've got enough evidence for an open and shut case. And there's no risk of a suspension for in, in, in that the suspension is a mistake, but yeah, it is concerning. And three years is a really long time in terms of a tennis career. So, this raises the whole set of questions that you briefly alluded to that the players who we're talking about here as potential match match fixers are almost always outside of the top 100 often far outside the top 100 they're struggling to make ends meet and it's not uh, tennis's governing bodies aren't offering a lot of solutions for what those players are supposed to do instead i mean in a way we might be lucky that most players aren't fixing matches uh, rather than looking at it as a bad thing that a few are and that's going to be a conversation for a different podcast we've had the, uh, the interim report from the, the big investigation into, uh, into potential problems in, in tennis like this and we have the, the introduction next year of the ITF transition tour which at least nominally moves a lot of players out of the professional ranks uh, which seems to me a backwards move but it, it, we'll need to see how it shakes out exactly um, but it's not something we've talked a lot about on the podcast because we've generally focused on the, the top end of the game or at, at least the players in the top 100 who are making a decent living out of it. But it is a big issue, and it affects the integrity of the game and, and even, even matches that have some relevance at the French Open, like a full week of qualifying matches with players, all of whom are outside the top 100. So hopefully we can look forward to some good conversations about that. And as we see more data come in from what changes as a result of of these investigations and, and what happens with the ITF Transition Tour next year. Um, Carl, do you have any other thoughts before we move on from that? Well, I, I think French Open qualifying
1: is now... There's now a measure in place, which I think you should talk about quickly, that might make it harder for someone to throw a match and have no one notice.
0: Oh yeah, that's a better segue than I thought. Um, Yeah, one of the things that a lot of, uh, one of the factors that can make match fixing either less likely or easier to detect, probably both, is just having video of the match. And something that I've been clamoring for for, I don't know, years, certainly as long as we've been doing this podcast, is getting more matches on video. I care about it because I like watching matches and I want to get a wider range of matches into the charting database and all that kind of thing. And it might. This might be the first slam where this has happened. But Eurosport and tennis channels' online offering both have every single Roland Garros qualifying match. I mean, it's just outrageous to imagine, like these players ranked 100 to 300 in the world, approximately, across 18 courts or something like that. Every single one has archived video. So if someone was throwing a match, I mean, we can have a whole other debate about how easy it is to detect a player who's lowering his or her level a little bit. But if there is any visual evidence, it's now recorded and that that's great for investigators on, on the one hand. Uh, But it's also great for fans because we have access to this. I mean, we might not care about checking to see whether the number 171 man in the world is fixing a match, but it is fun to be able to watch him play. Uh, So that, that is a really big step forward. And, I don't know if that was something that was recommended in this interim report, um, but I think it is something that represents a big step forward, just like the ATP having, having broadcast almost all challenger matches for the last few years now. I mean, we, it's easy to complain about a lot of the things that tennis does badly, but in some of these regards anyway, I think we've had some really big steps forward lately, and, and we need to celebrate those when they happen. Absolutely. So let's wrap it up there. Make this a relatively quick episode for us. Um, Carl, thank you as always for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. Everyone, thank you for listening. Hope you enjoy the fortnight of Roland Garros. Hopefully we'll be back with you for some updates during the tournament. So enjoy it and we'll see you next time.